0: Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel-san, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grip. Well hello guys and gals, welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 106. Will we get our kicks at 106? We will see today. Um, I've got a, a question today that I've, I've gotten a lot of versions thereof about real estate. And anybody that's listened to my podcast and and to somewhat my my video channels for any length of time knows I'm a big believer in real estate. I'm not a, uh, a high leverage guy. I'm not a landlord type. I believe that those are great business models. Don't get me wrong. But personally, I've done best with real estate by buying really, really smart and selling at the right time for me in my life. And no matter when I've sold, I've been able to make money on a property. No matter when I've bought... I've been able to buy good value. These are unusual times right now. Boy, it'd be easy to sell. Um, The profit I could take on my property right now would be insane. The other side of it, though, is you got to have somewhere to go. And I I really don't want to go anywhere, but a lot of you do. And I want to think about where we are, how we got here, and, and what comes next. Because what people are asking is about buying in a seller's market. And about a year, year and a half ago, I did a podcast on this. And it was still a really great time to buy even though it was already a seller's market. And I gave a lot of strategies and tactics in that and somebody said, well, can you do a short version on Miyagi, uh, in our Miwi post? And, but I've gotten a ton of questions about, is this the right time to buy? Should I build now? Should I wait? You know, what's going on? Well, This is one of those things. I feel a lot about this question like I did about how do I get started prepping when people were asking that in like April last year after COVID hit and everybody lost their minds and people wiped out the shelves of things and all. And it was like, it was so easy to do up till now. The world is not ending. Take a breath. Make sure you have enough to get by for five, six weeks, and you'll be able to begin prepping the smart right way. And that's exactly what happened. There's a cycle I want you to think of, and there's various things that cause these cycles. There's market forces, there's shortages, there's lots of ways. But no commodity, no anything, is immune to this cycle. Boom, glut, bust. Boom, glut, bust. And the glut can be in production or can be in purchase. And when you're in a, a, a situation where the boom and the glut are with you know, prices going up and then purchasing happening anyway, the cycle tends to last longer and is harder to work, to wait out than the typical cycle of commodity with Boom Glut Bust. The cycle of commodity with Boom Glut Bust is something we can explain, for instance, with CBD, which I said would happen as well. When everybody was jumping into it, we have a lot of ag people in our audience and stuff like that. I'm going to get a CBD. I'm going to do that. Boom Glut Bust, guys. It takes time for you to ramp the cycle up, and it's going to happen. And it did. And people said, well, how how would you know that? This is before it cycled, because it always happens, because it always happens. But in that, you have a boom, and then you have a glut of supply, and then you have a bust in price, because since it's a commodity that can be increased in uh, volume, in production, eventually the supply will exceed the demand, and you get the bust side of the cycle. Real estate is a limited, a highly limited commodity. Especially when we break it down into the four categories, we're about to break down where the real demand is right now. So there's not a shortage of real property right now. There's a shortage of the type of real property that these the people want to buy right now. There is a surplus of property in Manhattan, which is crazy. Never happened in, in a million years, I guess. You know, I guess it has before, but never like it is right now. There's a surplus of property in San Francisco. There's a surplus of property in Los Angeles. And I know some of you are like on the outskirts of L.A. going, yeah, they're, they're more expensive than ever. Yeah. Again, type, right? But there's four properties, and in my audience, they're probably exactly the four types of properties in order that people would prefer to have that have gone through this incredible cycle because people have left the cities in a max, mass exodus. There were videos... In New York City this last year of rider trucks and U-Hauls leaving and it looked like what it really was. Instead of, we have these typical cycles in real estate. So you, you know, have like, you can look and you can see at the macro level, you can see the demographic shifts happen as people migrate, move around. But I don't think it's ever happened like this. What it was is basically affluent refugees. When you have a little, literal caravan of moving trucks leaving, that's a mass migration. When you have people, and I know for a fact this happened, that drove from, like, L.A. to Nevada, rented a truck, drove it back to L.A. and then drove it across the country because they couldn't get one in L.A. You have something going on, a, a mega shift that, that we haven't really seen before, and that's, that's what's caused this. And as this was beginning and before it even started, I I, I reiterated the call I've been making now for 13 years, get out of the flashpoint cities, get out of the liberal cities, get out of the stupid states, get out of the population centers. And for years I said, you have time. Take your time and do this. Then last year when this all started, I wrote an article completely detailing everything that was going to happen. I said, if you want to move now, not next week, now, you need to start looking now, you need to plan now, you got to go now. And that if you didn't, we were going to have this, this, these types of properties dry up. And when they dried up, they would be very difficult to come by and very expensive. That's where we are now. So patience is, is really a, always a virtue in real estate, really a virtue now. But here's your four types of properties one, small town homes, and I don't mean town homes, small town homes. Got it? So not, not town homes like little row houses, small town Homes where the towns are small enough to be the only way I can put it is not full of stupid, but big enough to have most of the things people want. These are going to be towns that are somewhere between fifteen and fifty thousand people, and it has to be a town like that that's not like rate like appended, you know, like it's like like really it's it's they it looks like it's separate, but it's kind of a suburb to a big city, right? These little towns that are kind of like, that's the biggest town within 30 or 40 miles, and then it has almost like its own little satellite suburbs, that is that is the most in-demand thing there is right now. People can get high-speed internet. They can have coffee shops. There's a freaking Starbucks, things like that, right? And, And all the creature comforts. And if you're a tech person that can now work remotely, like that's kind of the first place that you look, and those have gone stupid in price. Urban Rural Fringe Properties. Right where I'm at. Right what I've always said is one of the sweetest spots in the world to be because you have the big city accoutrements, but none of the interference. So you can get anything you want from the cities and the towns, but you don't have to be part of it. You also have a huge population center to sell to if you're in the ag business or something like that. And just to drive home, house and I'd say those two properties types are almost tied. There's some variance depending on what part of the country you're in, etc. But overall, they're the two most in-demand properties right now. How much so? Where I live, Within 10 miles of my house, if you don't count getting closer to the city where you start to go into the suburbs of the actual city, there's one house for sale within 10-mile radius. So, like, let's say a 270-degree radius. If you go straight down into town, there's a few more. One, and it's selling for over a million dollars. And it's, it's, it's a much bigger house than mine. Don't get me wrong. It's not like all the houses are worth a million bucks. I'm just saying that exists. not exist. I got a friend that wants to move here right now to my area. Nothing for sale. That's how strong the demand is. Uh, three, traditional suburbs in what we would call free states. The states that didn't go completely stupid with COVID, Texas, Florida, etc., right? Um, so now you're into your more, like your, around here, you're into your Plano's, your Richardson's, and stuff like that. Like those properties just gobbled up. And that's the mass influx of people that aren't necessarily moving to get away from the COVID restrictions, but they kind of are, but... Because the economies are booming in these states, there are people that move in that they just, they want a normal house, and they don't want to live in the downtown urban center. So those properties have gotten stupid expensive. And they're probably about the third most in demand. And then the fourth are your truly rural properties, which are, in, don't get me wrong, because I la- label them fourth, like that they're not highly in demand. They're like ridiculously inflating in price. And if you look at those properties, this is the important window that you need to be looking through. What makes this something that you can be pretty sure will eventually self-correct is it's a fairly small demographic within a fairly small demographic of people. It's tens of millions of people, but it's still limited. There's still a point where it kind of plays itself out. The people making these moves are affluent. I didn't say rich, but they're affluent, meaning they make enough money that when they want to fill their gas tank, if the prices shot up to three or four bucks a gallon, they might bitch about it, but they don't not do it. You, 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 you get what I'm saying? If um, you know, they're kind of family that if if an old man goes home on Friday afternoon and it turns out grandma can watch kids, and wife says, "Hey, what about a date night?" And so they're going to go out and drop 100, 150 bucks on dinner. They they do it. They don't they don't run the checkbook to make sure that they can. That's the kind of people, the majority of people that are moving right now. Um, There's only so many of those people. There are also people that are willing to move and can move. You got that? Okay. So there's a point where that migration kind of does what it's going to do, and then you have a lot of other factors with eventual downward pressure on the real estate market. Uh, if interest rates go up like a stupid thing, like a quarter of a point, it's going to like hurt really, really bad. Because the, when the prices are inflated, a small interest rate increase really hurts the market. As the migration plays itself out, you're, you're having a lot of places right now where they're building new homes as fast as they can. But there's a, sh- a supply shortage on roofing material, board lumber, plywood, OSB, etc. That will correct... And then there's your glut on the supply side, because they're only building houses where the demand is. They're not building them across the whole country. You you understand that, right? So when this plays out, it's going to take a while to unwind and see these prices begin to come down. But if it were me right now, and I didn't get out, get out, get out when I was told to, and I wanted out now, I would look really hard at renting. So if what you want most is to get out, Find something affordable to rent. There's a lot of that out there right now, even in some places you wouldn't think. Uh, I just spoke to uh, a fishing guy that I fished with in Florida. He's running on Sanibel Island, where there are million-dollar homes around every turn. If you want something on the water, it's multi-million dollars if it's a shack. And he's still doing okay with rental. If you can do it there, you can do it anywhere. Because that definitely fits the demographic of the type of people we're talking getting the hell out. Right? It's Florida, and it's coastal property, and it's an incredible place. right? So if you can do it there, you can do it anywhere. And then begin house hunting. I'm not saying not to buy right now. I'm saying not to buy into the inflated market right now. You want to buy when there's blood in the water. And right now, the only blood in the water is the buyer's blood. So you might have not have to wait until there's an all-out frenzy on selling but I think that you can time this. That doesn't mean you might not find the right property at the right price right now. What you're going to have to deal with, property that needs significant work. And I mean, there, I know what some of you are going to say, and you're right. There are places where if what the property needs in relationship to significant work is a bulldozer, it's still selling fast. So you're going to also have to find a place where that's not true. And sometimes finding that place is as little as 10 miles left, right, you know, east, west, north, or south. Right? So that's one place to look and be incredibly patient. How patient? When Dorothy and I made the decision to sell our property in Arkansas and move back to Texas, we looked at properties for eight months. For eight months before we found the property we found. That's patience. That was in. It was a seller's market. Uh, don't get me wrong. In, in this area, in, in North Texas, it was a seller's market. It wasn't anything like it is now. And we were still that patient because we realized we're making a long-term decision in our lives. We weren't buying a starter home like when we got started out. We weren't moving to Pennsylvania so I could take a position uh, with, with a company and, and like we just needed a place to live. We were making a decision about where we were going to live long-term. So that's what you're doing. you got to be patient anyway. Now you've got to be extremely patient. And while you're being patient, you're letting this cycle unwind. There's so much going on with this right now that's going to make, make it take longer, though, and that's why patience must become an incredible virtue in your life with real estate right now. And, again, it should always be. But it's also the material shortages. So what that's doing is, like, flipping houses is almost impractical right now. I'm going to say impossible, but impractical. How can I flip a house... When I have to pay three times what I used to pay for plywood? How can I flip a house when some of the roofing materials companies aren't even taking orders for the next 60 days? You see the issue there. How can I move into a house that needs repairs before I move in when I can't get the material or the cost of the material is obscene to make those repairs? It's very, very difficult. So what what is going to be... The formula, if you're going to buy now, is finding somebody totally screwed that doesn't realize what they have. And you're going to have to find these little tucked away niches and gems. And that's just going to take shopping and patience. Or figuring out how to do things with like recycled and repurposed materials. But even that's exploding right now. Like it used to be like getting repurposed barn lumber was expensive, but it was doable. Even that's like just gone nuts. So what I've always said about real estate, and it's probably more true right now than it's ever been. You have to become a Vulcan when it goes into buying and selling real estate. You don't give two shits about anybody's feelings or emotions, especially your own. When you go and make an offer on a property and their, their their agent comes back with some kind of sob story about, you know, their, their, their st- I don't care. That's That's a sign that you've hit a right price point when you hear some sort of sob. And I've heard it. When I bought this place, I heard a sob story. And the property simply didn't appraise at the asking price. They didn't appraise at the offer price. And we knew we had them over a barrel. And so they they told, you know, their agent came through our agent and told us all their problems. And I said, their bigger problem is they have a property now that's appraised at this amount, which is how much we're willing to pay. And that's how much anybody's going to be willing to pay. Go tell them that. And we had to wait two weeks over New Year's to get an answer back. And my wife was like, oh, my God. we're really? No, we're not. No, we're not. Because you're in that position strong. And when you know you're strong in that position, don't yield. The other side of your emotion is don't get emotionally attached to a property. Don't start making plans for a property. Don't start believing it is the property. It's the only one like it. It's the perfect one for you. It's the only one. Because then you will become irrational in your willingness to do whatever it takes to obtain that property. And then worse, you probably won't get it anyway. And then you become more and more irrational which each new property, willing to do more and more and more before I lose that one too, and then you end up buying overpriced in an overpriced market at the exact worst time. And when the correction happens, you'll end up like a lot of people did in the 80s having purchased properties that they were unable to get out from underneath for 10 to 15 years. And you don't, I don't care how much this is your forever place, you don't ever want to be in a property that you can't divest yourself of. You want to keep your real estate portion of your portfolio as close to liquid as possible. And that comes from patience and persistence. The biggest advice I've always had with real estate, shopping is free. Shop online, shop in the real world. Don't deal with real estate agents right now until you find something you really... Because they, they'll lie to you. They'll push you. They'll prod you. If you're not already immune to their tricks, their, their freaking Jedi mind tricks, th- this is a terrible time to be dealing with a real estate agent. Because they'll say things like, well, you know, I, I'd hate to see you lose that property you love so much. You love the property. I mean, I'm serious. like This is what these people do. I'm not picking on real estate agents, but it's what they do. Especially when they're on the buyer's side of the equation, Right? Uh, I have to admit that in all of the real estate deals I've ever done, I've had two where I had competent agents and the rest of them I had to do the agent's freaking job. You probably will. So you need to be in the right state of mind when you engage with an agent. But what you can do is simply drive by. Look at properties, find a list of properties you think are cool and drive by and get an understanding of them and watch them and see how long it takes them to sell. Start to understand what fair market value really is in your and, and what you'll start to see is a trend. And right now the trend looks like well, the trend looks like, let's say, this. It's already done this, and now it's this. It's not this, right? It's it's and In various places, it's coming down. For those that are listening to the audio, basically we had a steep rise, and now we have a leveling, but it's still on the ascent. You start shopping now, and you'll see when that descent begins to come. You'll start to understand when the opportunity presents itself. You've got to be patient. If you find the right property, by all means, be ready to act, be pre-approved, have the money set aside, whatever it is, and be ready to go. But if it were me, right now in most places, like the ones I've described, I'd be looking to rent, to set up a beachhead, and to take my time shopping. I'm sorry I can't give you like a formula to simply get a great deal right now. It's that part of the cycle where the good deals are hard to come by. They can still be found. But it's going to take hunting, patience, and a lack of emotion. With that, I'll be back tomorrow with a completely different subject on Miyagi Mornings. Well, hello, guys and gals. Welcome to episode 107 of Miyagi Mornings. And as you can see, I'm in a rare mood. I'm happy because this is going to be a fun one. We have a special person in the audience who had to get on another listener, another uh, viewer, I guess, of the video on YouTube and tell him, you know, what a pussy he was. Now, he didn't use those exact words. I'll give you some of the exact words. They're actually far more intellectually inferior than even just saying that. But it was in response to my episode from yesterday about real estate, and I talked about not letting emotion get in the way. And uh, one gentleman stepped up and said, yeah, I'm, I'm fighting this with my wife, uh, not being emotional about this decision. Women tend to be more emotional in the world of real estate than men. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing chauvinistic about that. That's based on averages, and that's true. Well, we had a a special person, low IQ individual, uh, who calls himself Rogue Sovereign Mind. You ever notice these people that are actually kind of like little beta males that insist on dominating their women because they can't deal with actual, like, dealing with men? You know, they always act like they're alphas. They even claim that they're alphas, but they're never alphas. They're always betas among men and then dominating against their women. And they always give themselves stupid fucking names like Rogue Sovereign Mind. I bet you when he was a kid he called himself Dragon or some shit like that. That's always how these people are, right? And he went on to tell... Our friend Joe, who who simply made a comment that it's sometimes hard to keep my wife in check on emotion as we make this decision together, which is what a good married couple should do, what a dumbass he was and uh, how weak he was. And if he read the Bible, he'd know he should be subjugating his woman. He actually said some things like this. I love these two. These are exact quotes. No woman is a man's equal. And if you read your Bible, you'd know that. Uh, And he also said... um, no, in regard to women ever being equal to men, no alpha, liberty-loving, red-blooded man believes that, nor would any of them ever say it. You know, friends, it's a rare treat where a man drops his pants, exposes his ass, sets it on a great big T, and hands you a giant Big Bertha freaking driver and says, go to town. But our friend, Rogue Sovereign Mind, he did that. So let's talk about this. First of all, I'd like to just point out, I've made a offer to Rogue Sovereign Mind where he can prove how no woman could possibly be his equal simply because he has balls, okay? And uh, these are my two offers. The, among my audience of a quarter million, I'm sure I've got some women out there that are, like, highly trained in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I just, I just know this. Let me, using my, you know, what was that, uh... The guy that Johnny Carson used to play with, the envelope, right? Karnak, right? Let me use my Karnak powers, right? Yep, they're out there. They're out there. There's some blue belts and black belts. Been training for like 15, 16 years. About 140-pound, 140 140-pound 140 woman that trains. She's got more muscle and skeletal relation to a man about the same size. That I bet would submit this bitch in about 35 seconds in an arm bar, and he'd be tapping the shit out of the mat. So if he wants to prove his physical power over females, we can analyze him and we'll find him a woman to go compete with him on a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu mat. How about that? And, and then, well, intellectually, you must be superior as well. Rogue sovereign mind? Oh, God, you've got to be a genius to use a name like that. Who would ever come up with that if they weren't like, you know, sitting there with like an Einsteinian IQ, right? So. We can pick a subject or group of subjects, and I will find a female to debate you in that subject or compete in some way like a trivia contest to prove that she's intellectually superior to you. Now, if you was a real, red-blooded alpha male that would never, never say otherwise that no woman is equal to a man, you'd take on both of those. But I already know what this guy's going to do. He's going to come up with some bitch-ass excuse as to why he can't do it, like it's not right for a man to strike a woman. Hey, buddy, guess what? In jiu-jitsu, you don't have to strike anybody. You don't have to hit anybody. That's the whole point. So that's out the window. And on the intellectual, I don't know what he's going to pull out of his rogue, sovereign ass. But it'll be some excuse, some reason he won't step up and do this. And I'll tell you why now. Now I'm going to transfer over to why this type of mindset exists and why men like this act this way and show their ass publicly. And it's not really related to Mr. Rogue Sovereign Mind anymore. This is all the little bitches like this in the world. They do this. They're not alpha males. If you have to tell somebody you're an alpha male, if you have to say, I'm a red-blooded alpha male, you're a beta bitch. If you're alpha, you don't have to tell anybody you're alpha, you just are. You don't have to talk shit about other people because you disagree with what they're doing in their own life. You don't have to talk down to them because they actually value the opinion of their wife. See, I think that if you are a man... Who completely ignores your wife's wishes and wants and desires when it comes to something as monumentous as choosing your next home. You're a piece of shit. You're a piece of shit. Now, I'm going to tell you what. This is a guy that's probably completely dominated by his wife behind the scenes. Or he's the other kind of guy like this where he does dominate his wife, but I'll get to that at the end. These men are never alpha. Again, if you're alpha, you don't have to say you're alpha. If we compare these men to snakes, and I don't dislike snakes, so I'm not saying snakes are bad. I'm going to give you two different snakes here. An alpha male is like a cobra. If you've ever handled venomous reptiles, you know that cobras are extremely dangerous, but they're actually not that hard to handle. And the reason they're not that hard to deal with and to handle is because they know what they are. They're confident in their ability. They know what they can do. They know they have lethality behind their fangs. And that's when they rise up and they look you dead in the eye. And they're basically saying, dude, you don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I'd like you to go that way, and I'll go that way, and I'll go on my way. That's the cobra. Men like this guy, they're like the Fertilance. Fertilance is a snake that bites a lot of people and does a lot of damage in Central and South America. They're related to our copperheads, but they have a far more necrotic venom. And they're not confident in what they are and who they are. They're jittery and they're nervous, and they just lash out on everything like a bunch of, like like just, like retarded, venomous, they're like a retarded, venomous rattlesnake without a rattle. That's what a fertilance is, and that's how these beta males are. That's exactly how they are. So they're always trying to prove, they're always trying to puff up and be what they are. Cobras tend to just kind of go on about their business, and the only time they raise up in they hood is when they're saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to engage this way. I want to go on about my life and be left alone. That's how alpha males actually behave. They do what needs doing, they go on about their life, and they get shit done. Beta males are always feeling inferior to the alpha males around them. They never excel beyond their fellow males. So they, they dig into things like religion or other literature that indicates that men are naturally superior to females. And then again, if we look at the averages, so here's an example. If we look at the averages and we say, if we take people with an intellect above 140 IQ, there are more men in that demographic than women. That is absolutely the case. I promise you, our friend is not in that demographic, and people like him are never in that demographic. Okay? However, if we look at the demographic of like 120 to 130 IQ, there's actually more women in there. There's more low IQ men than women. If we measure the middle. So who is naturally, intrinsically more intellectual? It depends on how we measure. Are we measuring the top? Or are we measuring the aggregate average in the center? Or are we measuring the bottom? If you take people in the 90 to 110 range, there'll be more men toward the 110 and more women toward the 90. But if you take the overall average, you'll have more women in the high center Why? I don't know. It just works out that way. If we go and we pull a hundred men off the street and a hundred women off the street and we randomly match them up and put them into physical competition, the men will do far better than women physically on the average. There's also things that women intrinsically are, are more gifted at than men. They make better counselors. They make better counselors than we do. Men tend to make better leaders overall. How much of that is naturally intrinsic and how much of that is our natural innate prejudice? I don't know. But I'll tell you what, I've worked for some women that were exceptional freaking leaders. And I've worked for some men that were horrible leaders. So there's no absolute in here. Again, I offer Mr. Rogue Sovereign Asshole Mind to step up and prove that he's superior to all women. And get his ass handed to him. But what happens is these men seek to dominate others, and they just constantly get bitch-slapped by life. So then they find this ideology that they are supposed to be, and they are inherently uh, superior to females. And then generally what they do is they seek out the weakest, most damaged, easiest-to-dominate female they can find, and that's who they choose. And then they hold on to them by telling them constantly, either directly or indirectly, through little jabs, you're lucky to have me, no one else would have you, you better do what I say. And they're sad. And they're sad. You know what they never seek out? Independent, strong women who know who they are, what they are. They never seek out the female cobra. See, this is how you know the real alpha. The real alpha pairs with an alpha of the opposite sex. That's the real alpha. If you see a guy, and he goes out and finds a woman that's willing to be subjugated to beta in their relationship, she's a beta. And guess what? So is he. Like attracts like, in the words of Richard Bach. And everybody you see that goes out and flaunts how alpha they are in their heart knows that they're a beta. They know they were always the last one picked For the team. At least after they played with the other kids the first time. Maybe they looked at him and said, Oh, this guy looks like he can shoot or he can score or whatever. And then they put him on the team and went, Yeah, you're going to the back of the line from now on. These men that behave this way are always that person. They are always the person that just wasn't quite good enough to get the promotion. The important promotion. The big one. They're the ones that lead lives of mediocrity yet puff themselves up to be something bigger than they are constantly. And again, they either end up in a relationship with a female who is completely subservient and damaged and wounded so they can dominate them, or they front and they end up in a relationship where that woman is in control and she actually wears the pants behind the scene. It's one or the other. And it's all the time. Is there any hope for people like this? I'm not a psychologist, Though I dabble in psychiatry, I, I, I don't know. I don't know, but I do know that the first step for anyone to fix any problem is to admit the truth about it and to realize who and what they really are. Then and only then can you begin to build a new life. So I'm back to, you know, if you're so superior to all women, why don't we see you prove it? Because maybe that'll force you to be in touch with the reality that your ideology is flawed. That your logic is flawed. It's based on fallacy. I guarantee you, you show me a man and I will find you a woman that can best him in at least three different ways. And you find me a woman, I'll find a man that can best her in three different ways. This is not about equality. This is, this is, and it's certainly not about equity. It's about mutual respect and recognizing the gifts inherent to every individual. If a woman in a relationship is much better at a thing than a man, then she should take the helm at that thing she is better at, and the man should take the helm at the things he is better at. And if those things happen to marry up to to normal gender roles as we see them, because there is some wisdom in that, then we shouldn't be offended by it. We shouldn't be offended by the woman who wants to stay home and raise her children as a conventional housewife. We also shouldn't be offended by the woman that wants to be a fucking CEO. You understand how simple this is? This isn't wokeism. You're not like Jack didn't suddenly get woke and thinks that, you know, transgendered fe- males should be able to compete in female sports. That's fucking stupid. It really is. But this idea that because on average men are better at these things, that they're better at everything than women is backwards logic. It's circular logic, and it's based on so many fallacies, I can't even be le- begin to list them. But I'll just say it one more time as I close with you. I promise you. Any guy that runs around puffing his chest up about how alpha he is, ain't. And any guy that feels the need to dominate women to prove that he's an alpha is not just a beta, he's a bottom beta. With that, I'll be back tomorrow with a different subject. Hey, Rogue Sovereign Mind, thanks for setting your ass up on a tee. I really appreciated it. Well, uh, hello, guys and gals. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 108. And, uh... Today's episode was inspired by a meme. I I seldom get inspired by a meme to do uh, a show segment or a Miyagi Mornings episode or anything like that, Uh, but I did today. And um, The meme was fairly clever. It had a couple headlines from the New York Times uh, saying that you should not do your own research when it comes to science and health. Do not go down the rabbit hole. Critical thinking is dangerous. And someone had taken those headlines, or screenshots of them, and put them onto a picture. And then at the bottom of that picture popped in a photo of uh, George Orwell, famously known for, among other things, the book 1984, uh, about extreme totalitarianism, the eventual place that all states are headed towards. A state heads toward totalitarianism because a state seeks to replicate it, uh, to, uh, to, to protect itself like, it, like an entity. It, it seeks to grow, and it seeks to survive above all things, and therefore all it can do is get bigger over time. And if a state gets bigger, then its rules, its laws, and its controls grow. That would be critical thinking if you were able to sort that out. Um, but in that book, a, a quote that's not often actually looked at, that probably should be more, from that book, was the following. The party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final and most essential command. The second part of that is really important based on today's subject. Their final and most essential command. Let me put it this way. There's a war on about every aspect of freedom in the world. Every time a new license is created, something that people were somehow able to do for thousands and thousands of years, now needs the government stamp of approval for you to do it. And they want to license and permit everything so they can control and regulate everything. They want to make sure there is not a speck of commerce that can go by without them getting their grubby little hands in there and taxing it. Uh, They have a cabal formed with the oligarchs and the technocrats for total and complete control of humanity. But why would then you do not believe the evidence of your own eyes and ears be their final and most essential command? It is because this is the one war they either win or lose everything by. All the other battles, all the other wars, all the other skirmishes come down to can you convince the masses to ignore the evidence of their own eyes and ears and believe the message of the state or the messenger of the state, no matter how much in conflict that is with logic and reason, if you can do that, you can bring a society to total, complete control. If you don't do that, you you will run the cycle that every megastate has ever run. You will start with a small free state, you will grow into a semi-totalitarian state, you will grow into a full totalitarian state, and then you will collapse under your own weight and the cycle will continue. It is not that the agenda of ultimate growth and control is not doable as a thing unto itself. It is individuals who think critically who are the greatest danger to such a state. Because critical thinkers... Over time, as people get more and more disenfranchised, they keep being promised, well, if we just had this power, then you'd be happy. If we just had this power, then you'd be happy. If we just had this power, the rich will finally pay their fair share, etc. And it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen. There's a a discontent among the true believers. And the critical thinker among them, this is why uh, Stalin sent so many people to Siberia and put so many bullets in so many heads, we're like a virus, because what we say makes sense, and even the most asleep, eventually, when they become so discontented with what their surroundings, begins to follow the same process and start to ask questions, and start questions lead to answers, and answers lead to no longer believing things in spite of what you see and what you hear. So what I wanted to give you today is my five rules for critical thinking. Rule number one, assume anyone and anything that you hear is a lie. You have to start out from the assumption that what you're being told is not true, or that it at least is not completely true, because you will find that in most instances, anybody telling you anything, even someone on your side, whatever the hell that means, is not completely true. So we must begin with the assumption that the thing, the claim, whatever it is, is untrue. But we also must reserve within ourselves the possibility that it might be true. In other words, the preponderance of evidence is always from the beginning that the thing is a lie, but we could be wrong. Okay. I know that's hard to get your head around, because the next one is going to drive home what makes it so hard. You'll find it really easy when the claim is in opposition to what you already believe, whatever your perception is. And confirmation biases already say. So, step two, you have to determine what you want the truth to be. So, we're going to assume the claim is a lie. And regardless of what the claim is, do I want the claim to be true or false? Because I can assume it's a lie, but I want it to be true. I could assume it's a lie, and I could want it to be false. I need to know where I'm at with that. Step three, I now need to. Build a case against my bias. I need to go out and find all the information that I can that disproves the the claim as being the way I wish it to be. If I wish for the claim to be true, I must first attempt to prove it false. If I wish the claim to be false, I must first attempt to prove it to be true. Regardless of the fact that I've already assumed that it's a lie. You got it? So first... We assume it's a lie, or it's at least not the total truth. Two, we determine what we want to be the truth. Three, we build a case counter to our own desire. And we build the strongest case that we can. I want you to think about it like this. Let's say you were a defense attorney. Your job is to provide your client with the best defense under the law. You actually think he's guilty, but your job is to provide him with the best defense possible, to, to unturn, overturn every rock, to look under everything, to look at every technicality, to do everything you can to prove your client not guilty. Understand that. Your job as a defense attorney is not to prove your client innocent. It is to prove him not guilty. That the, 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 the preponderance of the evidence is not sufficient to convict. And you do every, if you're good, you do everything you can to get that outcome. So you pretend that your opinion is the prosecutor and you're defending the defendant. And you do, you build the best case you can. And you know what you do when you, when you realize like, okay, I've done everything I can to prove myself wrong. Now you go be the prosecutor. Now you build a case. This is your, your fourth step, right? We're going to build a case against the argument we just built. Now I'm going to go try to prove what I wanted to believe in the first place is true. It's very important that I build the oppositional case first. I will not survive the process as a critical thinker if I take my own side first. I won't. I have to immediately doubt myself even before I doubt the source. And then once I build the counterclaim, I need to sit back and I need to go into Vulcan mode like we talked about, right? Vulcan mode like we talked about during the real estate episode on Monday. Dispassionate with total disregard for my emotions, wants, and needs. And now I evaluate the two cases that I've built myself because I can trust – no matter how much I can't trust myself, I can trust myself more than I can trust these other parties. And now, like a judge rendering a verdict that has been cleverly and completely and articulately argued by two gifted counselors, I will render my final opinion. And understand that, the judges in the end render opinions, not rulings. They're taken as rulings, they're enforced as rulings, but since the judge himself is a man, and men are fallible, or a woman, okay, I know that upsets some people, since the judge is a human, all that it can render, all that he or she can render, and I'm not giving you any more than he or she, was two, two genders, sorry guys, I'm rendering that opinion, um, is an opinion. Courts render opinions. And opinions are subject that future information may alter them. A ruling would be a true law, a natural law, like gravity, you drop shit, it falls. We may not really understand what gravity is, but there are inherent intrinsic reality laws in relation to gravity. If you drop something, it falls. Yeah, very simple. What if it's lighter than air? Well, that's not actually what it is, but okay, I get what you're saying. If you drop something that has sufficient mass, it falls. That's a law of gravity. We're we're not going to change our opinion on that. But we may change our opinion on the law by which it happens. And this is how you have to render an opinion on a thing. Because someone may present you with information in the future that would alter your opinion. And this is, I'm going to show you exactly right now a concrete example from the news of how the media refuses to do its job. This is the process that we used to call journalism. What I just gave you is the process of journalism. This is what every story that's regurgitated and spit out by entities like the New York Times should go through, or it's not journalism, it's not news, it's propaganda. Got it? We have to go through this process because they won't do it for us. An example right now, gee. Guess what? It looks highly likely like this whole COVID shit was started by a virus being released from a lab in Wuhan. Now, the reason the journalists didn't come to that being at least a possible conclusion and silenced and screamed and shrieked at anybody that said otherwise was because of two things. First, was basing their opinion on rather than research a fallacy known as an appeal to authority fallacy. Well, Fauci says so. Who gives two shits what Fauci says? I don't. I never have. When you've got a guy that's been a bureaucrat for 40 years, his opinion should be relegated to below the opinion we started these rules with. Basically, if you take a shit in the woods, the thing that eats the shit you leave behind should have a higher relevance of opinion than a 40-year bureaucrat. I don't care what they're in. So that was one problem. But the other was Trump derangement syndrome. They're actually admitting it now, but they're trying to use it to cover their ass. They're like, well, we had every reason to doubt it because Trump had given up all his credibility by then. So what you're saying is because you hated this person, because you had decided everything this person had to be a lie, you refused to do your job, and now you're using that person as cover for your refusal to do your job. And I could keep going. And this is not about COVID. This is about every claim the sons of bitches make every freaking day. That's why rule number one, you must assume that everything that you're told by every source is a lie or at least not the whole truth. Real simple. Then what do you want to be true? And then build a case what you want first and then build a case for what you wanted second and then, and only then, render an opinion that is subject to change by future information, like, oh, gee, look at all this information about the Wuhan lab. And most of that information, friends and neighbors, has been available since almost the beginning. We had a young woman, I can't remember her full name, a Chinese doctor, researcher, been working on the virus in China since it started, who came on national TV at great personal risk to her life and the safety of her family and said, huh, it was built in a lab. And they said, shut up. Shut up. And now they're like, oh, well, you know, look at this little piece of information over here. Oh, that you suppressed. Because why? You have to assume everything you're told is either a lie or not the full truth. Because there are agendas. Everybody has an agenda. The only way you can be a true crit- critical thinker is for the time that you are making a determination on an issue to take your little agenda and shove it up your ass. No, I'm kidding. To take your little agenda, package it up in a box, sit it over here on the shelf. And when you're done with the process, your biases, your agenda, the things that you believe in, in your heart, your spirituality, your religion, your party allegiance, all of it, it's not gone. You can go right back over here, and you can put it back inside yourself so you feel all complete like a human again. Right, Because some humans, we need those things. But during the examination, this must be done. This must be done. It must be based on, I have evidence for or against the following things. And the most logical conclusion for the time is X. X is subject to uh, to alteration, to complete and total reversal, to amendment, X is subject to so many things. But until such time as I'm presented with greater evidence for X or against X than I have at this time, this is the opinion I'll have. It is the thing that they do not teach in our schools. I went to school almost 40 years ago. (laughs) Holy crap. At a time when we were taught far more an actual education than the indoctrination children are given today. The schools were better when I was a kid. Absolutely. I was never taught to think like this in school. And I bet you people that are 30 years older than me were never taught to think like this in school. I don't think there's probably many people alive that were ever taught to think this way. This is basically one of the spokes that comes off of the core that is the trivium method of education, which hasn't really been taught for hundreds of years. Why? 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 Because critical thinking is dangerous to them. I invite you to be a true human, a feral human. And feral humans are dangerous. It's okay to be dangerous. I'll leave you with this. I've picked this up from my buddy John Bush. You know you have people telling you stay safe? Every time somebody tells me to stay safe, I respond with, Stay free. Stay free, my friends. I will be back with another episode tomorrow. Hi, folks. Jack Spirko here with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. Miyagi Mornings episode 109 today. Uh, Right out of the gate, I'm going to announce some more changes to what's going on. I tried a structural change in my podcast and incorporating Miyagi Mornings into uh, the podcast as as a weekly edition instead of like a bonus on the Saturday. I'm going to keep doing that, but the way things worked out so far this week were not uh, smooth. They were quite bumpy. So what's going to happen is this week, the recap will be on Monday and Friday. Uh, That's not going to be an ongoing thing. Next week, we're going to go to a schedule of Monday through Thursday, typical podcast, and then Miyagi Mornings drops on Friday, the recap podcast of the whole week's editions, all-in-one, audio only. So that's how that's going to work I'll explain that more today on our podcast for today, uh, which will end up being the expert counsel show on a Thursday instead of a Friday, and that's how it's going to be going forward. And I'll explain it more in depth if you're interested uh, in today's edition of the Survival Podcast at thesurvivalpodcast.com. All right, so today we're going to talk about cryptocurrency, and we're going to talk about it from the standpoint of, are most cryptocurrencies worthless? Worthless, useless, have no future, call it anything you want. This all stems from a article that was on, I think, Crypto Potato. It was shared in on our MeWe Crypto Group, the Practical Cryptocurrency Discussion Group. And the chairman of the St. Louis Federal Reserve said most cryptocurrencies are worthless. And it caused a lot of triggering in some people about how this guy's a moron, doesn't know what he's talking about. These are people that didn't read the article. The most interesting thing about this article is the acknowledgement of how many cryptocurrencies are not worthless. You realize people like this guy... And his ilk and people from Goldman Sachs and other investment uh, management services, et cetera, uh, investment banks, uh, what have you, have been calling all cryptocurrency worthless since the very beginning, and they've slowly begun to change their tune. And so in that article, this guy, enters a link, so you can read it if you want to, but he acknowledges that cryptocurrencies like Ethereum and Bitcoin and Litecoin are probably going to be around for a long time and have a certain utility, which uh, that's massive progress in that space. That means they're beginning to accept reality. But he's not wrong. Most cryptocurrencies are worthless. I am one of the biggest advocates of cryptocurrency on the planet. and I agree most are worthless. And a little lesson we have from you know what we call democracy, 51 um, percent would be most. 51 percent would be most. Anything greater than the median would be most. So if we had six we had 10 people in a room and six of them preferred apple pie to cherry pie, then we could say of that group, most of the people preferred cherry pie. So the threshold to most is simply more than half. And he ain't wrong, and it's a lot more than half. There are something like 10,000 cryptocurrency projects. We don't need 10,000 currencies. The key is which ones aren't worthless. Which ones do have long-term legs? Which are the ones that we should be investing in? I have six questions that I have been suggesting people ask themselves since the very beginning, at least my very beginning. I go back to about 2014, early 2014, that I've been in the space, and none of these, none of these have changed over time. I keep looking for more, but I haven't found more than these six. The first question is the most important question. And it was the first one to make it on my radar, and I started asking way, way back in the dark ages. What is the utility of the coin or the token? What does it do? What is its purpose? Because the answer better be, well, it's, like, it's better than Bitcoin. That's not, it, it, you know, that was, that was an answer when Litecoin came out. It was a good answer when Litecoin came out because of the next question, right? But today, that's not a good answer. That's not a good answer because usually when somebody says that, what they mean is it's better for buying a scone and a coffee. We have plenty of shit that does that, so that's not an answer. What problem does it solve that a current um, coin or token does not solve, or how does it solve that problem better? Because the next question is, what does it do that an alternative doesn't already do? Especially an established alternative. Like when you say, well, we're more private or we're whatever, like, are you really and if you're about the same as something that's heavily established already, I'm not real impressed. If you really are better, then maybe we need to take a look at what you're doing. But we got to get there first. What do you do? And does anybody already do this that's already established that you're competing with who's already light years ahead of you? right? Do you have some advantage that is not already intrinsic to the market with somebody else? Those are you gotta get through those, and then the third one, and then the third one. The third one is really really important. It kind of wraps into the first two, and that is, is there an added utility with the project's blockchain itself? Does the blockchain do something that mitigates the fact that while well, this new currency is kind of cool and it does some cool things and it works really well, there's other things that do the exact same thing. Here would be an example. How about Odyssey? Library, right? LBC coin. If you brought me LBC coin and said, well, you know, it basically uses the same algorithm as Bitcoin and you mine it the same way and it does the same stuff and it has well, like 200 confirmations instead of six. And uh, so it actually takes a little longer in some instances to be fully confirmed, but it works really, really good and it's inexpensive and it's, it, it works great. I'd say, so what? Big whoop. But if you integrate it into a platform like Odyssey, where fans can tip creators using a native currency and they can actually onboard with it there, having never used a cryptocurrency in their life, simply through their actions and activities. Acquire some, get a feel for it, learn how it works, start sending it, using it, paying for content with it because you can either tip a creator or I could do like a documentary and sell it for $4.95. But instead of selling it on you know, like uh, Vimeo or something like that, I could sell it on a library and you take LBC token for it and even though it's a public blockchain it's really really anonymous because there's no KYC or anything aha uh-huh. like okay so now this t- this this currency which is basically a bitcoin clone with with more units that works really well but it's it's basically a bitcoin clone Now it has a utility, and now because it is its own blockchain, it does its own thing, and the people that built it are the same people that built the blockchain that runs the Odyssey platform, and I know the integration is going to be seamless and always so, because the same people are doing the same work. Now I'm interested. You see how that works? So even though the the token itself is not truly unique in of itself, it's not earth-shattering, it's not life-changing by itself, the utility of the blockchain, real short... Arc is another currency I really, really like. It's a proof of stake. It's a clone of a, a currency called Lisk. It really ain't that much different than Lisk. Uh, I think you can actually hold Lisk in an ARC wallet. That's how the same they are. Uh, it's a proof of stake. You can earn a return by holding it and delegating your stake uh, to a delegate. Great. Lots of other people do that. But they build a blockchain that allows corporations, companies, entities that want to create their own blockchain to point, click, make a blockchain. Okay, so you can take their blockchain and use it. If you want to use blockchain for, let's say, inventory management of a large corporation and save thousands of hours in programming and spit out a prototype that only needs tweaking from there on to then complete your project, and then you build a marketplace based on that, now I'm interested. So in those two cases, you have two currencies that aren't really that amazing in and of themselves, but the blockchain is the magic. Okay. Okay. The next question I want to know: What is the team like? It, what is the team behind it like? What kind of team is there? What's going on? And there's two things I want to know. I want to know what the developer team is like, right? If the developers are solid, I know this project is going to keep being modified. It's going to be, keep being made better. When there's a problem, it's going to be corrected. They're going to keep doing what's necessary to keep it at the leading edge of things in a space where there's always somebody trying to take you down. That's what I love about crypto. It is capitalism personified, guys, because you come out with something and somebody can literally take everything you've done and start adding to it if you stop adding. So I want to know those developers are solid. The other thing I want to know is they have solid marketing. One of the most important things to a cryptocurrency's longevity and success is adoption. You've got to get people and you've got to get companies and you've got to get entities to adopt it and use it. So there's some people that kind of poo-poo on marketing a cryptocurrency. Oh, we're just a project with a bunch of techno geeks and whatever. You know what? You're going to get your ass handed to you. There is no more first mover advantage. That went away all the way back with Satoshi. Bitcoin has first mover advantage. You're never going to have first mover advantage. I don't care if you come up with some radical new way to do things. You are still a little tiny guppy in a great big ocean. And lots of other fish trying to eat you. So you need to have a combination of solid marketing and solid dev. Um, that's why I like Algorand. Because you've got they 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 raised a shitload of money. They've got an incredible team of advisors, they've got an incredible tech team, and they've got a good solid marketing team. Right? And it's a proof of stake, and you know, you can earn a return and all. And I'm not saying it's gonna shoot to the moon or anything and buy me a Lambo. But you know, I threw a few thousand dollars in it because it met these tests. The next one I want to know is what is the supply control like? This is something I'm not a fan of with RAM, but it's solid enough elsewhere that I've overlooked it. When somebody has a cryptocurrency that's going to you know, create a billion units, you just got to do a little math on what that makes for a market cap. You know, what's the best case scenario of the market cap? That's the total units times the price equals the total value of shares or coins or tokens in circulation. If you don't know that, boy, you need to learn some basic financial literacy before you go dabble in this space and get your ass kicked. But when you do that and you're like, well, shit, this thing could have the market cap of Bitcoin and it'd be worth a dollar, you you realize that it's, it's a real hard road. One of the things that Bitcoin did was place a hard cap on a currency, something that the central banks of the world do not have the discipline to do, and it handled needing more with the ability to fractionalize. So they did what's called a cap and fractionalized currency. It's brilliant. It's a deflationary currency. It's why cryptocurrency has created savers in a generation that doesn't know how to save their ass from their from their hand. Right? I mean literally like the spending generation. That is the millennial generation. They're the spenders. All of a sudden they're saving. Because your currency, the US dollar, and all the the, the, the Western civilization currencies and all the civilizations currencies across the world All the national currencies are designed to create spending. That's what an inflationary currency does. It causes people to spend it. If you want to incentivize saving and investing, and investing long-term, you need a hard currency. Cryptocurrencies can be hard currencies, or they can be incredibly soft currencies. And knowing how much total units there ever can be, what is the having? in other words, Most cryptocurrencies have a cap, they produce a shitload, they're inflationary in the beginning to get it in circulation, and then it begins to have every so, you know, four years, three years, whatever, it halves and halves and halves. So there's less and less new currency produced, and people have to make do with what's on the market. I want to know that. It is not the end-all be-all, but I'm very interested in that metric making a final decision. And then the last one is, will anyone really care in the long run about this crypto? Because it can be a solid project with good utility, but if people don't care or if it's going to lose, it's gonna crash and burn. Here's an example. I'm so freaking old. I remember VCRs, and I remember watching these commercials that would come on TV, and you could get this you know magical movie or whatever you know, and you can get VHS or Betamax. Betamax. What the hell is a Betamax? Betamax was basically a DVD, another outdated technology, before DVDs. But it was, a, it was like as big as a record, like an LP. What's an LP? Uh, go ask your grandparents, right? So it was this huge disc. You stuck it. You know what? It worked. It never, like VCRs used to get the tapes all crinkled and wrapped up and break. And then you'd lose your movie. But you know what I never saw? Back when Blockbuster was a store you went to and you rented movies... It had a sticker on them that said, Be Kind, Rewind, kids. That's because they were tapes. There was never a Betamax in there. It didn't get adopted. No one cared. There were a few geeky nerds that pointed out, hey, the picture quality's better. No one gave a shit. Overall, it was a better technology than VCRs. But you could tell right away it wasn't going to happen. It was the Zune in the battle between the iPod and Microsoft Zune. It was relegated to archaic status the day it came out. You need to look at cryptocurrencies and say, "Is this thing going to be archaic? Because what it's going to be is worthless." You know, there's a movie, a movie that probably everybody on the planet's seen by now, right? Home Alone. Remember Kevin? Right, right. And the, the burglars are robbing the house. That movie's so old that one of the things they're excited about being able to rob. When Joe Pesci's character is talking to uh, I can't think of the other guy's name about what's in the houses, it's like high quality goods, man, like VCRs. You can't give away a VCR to be used as a doorstop today. Even freaking hipsters don't want VCRs, far as I know, anyway. Who the hell knows what hipsters really want? I think past blue ribbon beer and cheap sunglasses, right? Like it's just not valid. Well, if you're talking about a digital currency and it goes the way of the Betamax or the VHS. It's dead. So you need something that has longevity. This is why I love Bitcoin. Bitcoin has basically a financial reserve status at this point. And people can get triggered about that and believe it's a lie and it's not really digital gold or whatever. And the people that say it's not digital gold don't even know what people mean when they say it's digital gold. They have no idea what somebody saying that who's informed actually means. Don't listen to those people. Even people I respect think that. They don't know what they're talking about. You've got to evaluate these things hardcore. And you have to stop getting excited about every new one you hear about because that's the game. I'm going to come up with a project, we're going to put this out, we're going to put good snazzy marketing behind it, tell you why you should want to hold this currency, since we're the ones that make it, we're mining it in advance doing a pre-mine, or just since we are the ones that launched it, we're mining it really heavily first, or we're issuing it to ourselves in a proof of stake, we pump it way up, and then when you guys buy in, we sell it, and since we have no real vested cost in it, we make a fortune, and if it dies, it dies. I already got my money and moved it into Bitcoin. There's a lot of that shit going on. So just because something sounds snazzy, just because there's like 20 YouTubers talking about it in a row, like don't think that these companies are not slick. And I, am in, I do want good marketing. But they'll reach out to like the 20 best well-known YouTubers in the crypto space, and they'll give them a bunch of it, and they'll say, hey, do an analysis for us and whatever, and they'll do that shit. It's got to have the first part the utility of the token or the utility of the blockchain in a way that something doesn't already do it, then you add the marketing, then you add the dev, right? And I'm not talking about in the order that they do it. I'm talking about you and your mental evaluation. And then you have to ask, will anybody care? Prime example, I remember about five or six currencies that came out back in the heyday of ICOs, 2017. They were cryptos for the electrical market. And they would just say, the electrical market's an $80 trillion gazillion dollar market and we're going to run it. No, you're not. Why the hell would the electric company give a shit about your individual unique currency? Did you build a blockchain that somehow seamlessly integrates with their existing billing system? No, no. Then they don't give a shit. If if TXU, right, or Encore or whatever, wants to take cryptocurrency, they can take Bitcoin. They can take Bitcoin Cash. They can take Litecoin. They can take anything the hell they want. If the electric companies, as big as they are, want an integrated crypto, they're going to build it for themselves. They're not going to go to you to get it. (laughs) yeah, yeah, if the central banks want a cryptocurrency, they're not going to use Ripple. No, it's garbage. Don't be misled. Be a hardcore asshole. When you're asking these questions, just like I talked to you about earlier this week with real estate, you have to go Vulcan. You can't get emotional here. Logic and reason. And you better have a damn good reason. If you can't articulate the reason that you're putting your money into a crypto project, you probably shouldn't be doing it. With that, I'll be back next week with more episodes. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series. And please remember you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade.